Guardian Unlimited. Alex Salmond once appeared fated to spend his life on the political margins, but now he's hailed in Scotland as some kind of national saviour. In 2007, he became the Scottish First Minister. Four years later, against not inconsiderable odds, he was elected as part of a majority SNP government. He wants Scotland to separate from England and from Westminster, and now the SNP are firmly in charge. There's a real possibility of that happening. To some people, he's arrogant and smug. To others, he has brilliant leadership qualities. I've come to Edinburgh to find out the truth about the man some people call Wiec. Can you pick some words to describe the Scottish First Minister, Alex Salmon? <laughs> That's a very long pause, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, Over-enthusiastic, doesn't always come through with what he says he's going to do, you know. Um, astute. Maybe a bit not quite with it. Determined. Gives us a lot of false promises. Very clear vision of how he would like things to be in Scotland. Those are the words. The First Minister, uh, I think he's a man with an overinflated ego. <laughs> he is more concerned with the SNP than he is in providing benefits to the Scottish public. I think he's quite nice, to be honest. Like, no looks-wise, obviously, but he's, he's, he's quite a nice bloke. He's got great oratory powers. He listens to the people as well. He delivers. Straight to the point. Who's for the jugular? There's not been a speaker like that for a long time in Scotland. Alex Salmond, you're a politician. It's in the nature of politics that there's a mixture of opinions about you. But nonetheless, uh, your approval ratings are pretty much unprecedented. You've pulled off the feet of leading a majority SNP administration. You must wake up every morning wondering when it's all going to start to go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be optimistic. I'm trying to stay in touch with the, 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 the nation. You know, they used to say there was a deeply imbued uh, pessimism among Celts. That they would, uh, that's, that's what they would tend to do. You know, <laughs> why, why is it all going so well? Oh dear, something might happen soon. I, I've tried to introduce or help introduce to the country the idea that things might get better as opposed to all of a sudden they're going quite well but might get worse. So in keeping with the, the optimism I'm spreading around the country, I try to retain a bit of it myself. But for you yourself, this, this current amazing run of fortune inevitably won't last, will it? Well, it depends how much you think it's fortune uh, and how much you think there might, be, uh, there might be something substantial. I mean, there's that great story about Gary Player, you know, when he, he won the Masters at the age of about 46 and... Uh, I had a 64 in the last round, and the press conference afterwards, somebody said, that's the greatest round of golf I've ever seen, but you were quite lucky, Mr. Player. To which he replied, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> the more the SNP government practices, the luckier we've got. Let me go back uh, a fair way. You were raised by a, a Tory mother, that's correct, mm -hmm. and a staunch Labour father. Mm -hmm. What was it? that made someone from a household like that become a staunch Scottish nationalist? It's quite interesting. I mean, I, I can actually remember them arguing about uh, Winston Churchill. You know, my, my mum thought he was the greatest man that ever lived, and my, my dad wanted to hang him for what he'd done to the miners. <laughs> they had a different, different view, but there isn't actually as much a contradiction as, as you would think. It wasn't uncommon uh, in the, these days in the early 1960s for the Scottish Conservatives to have a strong working class support. Sure. And also the Conservatives were viewed differently. I mean, my mum, for example, thought that Alec Douglas Hume, Harold Macmillan, Alec Douglas Hume were the greatest man ever lived. She had this view that uh, you know, Alec Douglas Hume clearly couldn't be corrupt because he didn't need to be corrupt because he was, because he was rich. But also, to be fair, uh, you know, Conservatism in these days was one nation, sure. Toryism. And, and 
exemplify the point of view. Uh, so it's not it's not as uh, as daft as what as made you what made you move away from those respective political identities and become a Scottish nationalist? Well, my dad beat me to it. Uh, my, my dad uh, transferred and uh, sometimes this is the legendary story of the grumpy Labour Labour candidate. Well, it's, uh, well, it's my dad's story. It's apocryphal, but it, it's true. And uh, my dad actually took offence on on behalf of his pal and changed uh, on the doorstep. And, and if because the Labour canvasser was rude to his friend. And the Labour canvasser called the SNP Scottish nose picker. So my dad ended the conversation by saying, look, I just want you to know that you've achieved in the last half hour that I shall vote SNP, and I shall always vote SNP from here on in. And so he's still of that opinion and, uh, and uh, will maintain that opinion. So it was quite an important thing for me because, uh, you know, this first time... I was conscious, I'd be, what, 10 years old. So my dad started to have political arguments with our relations, all of whom were Labour voters, as he announced this dramatic conversion to, you know, an astonished Hogmanay family gathering or something. I kind of sided with him because he was outnumbered. What is it that makes you a Scottish nationalist? I ask you that because I wonder whether it's a matter of simple national identity into which any number of ideologies can be included, or whether Scottish nationalism denotes deeper values that might sit somewhere on the sort of left-right political spectrum? That's a good question. I mean, I think you know, a sense of Scottishness was imbued in me by my grandfather. He was by far the most uh, influential person. As far. He told me great stories. You know, I got Braveheart from my, my granddad's knee. Uh, it was much better than Braveheart, incidentally. It was really good stuff. And, uh, uh, so that, that sense of Scottishness, and my upbringing, where I was brought up, and the, the town I was brought up in, I mean, you would... You'd had to have lacked a soul not to be impressed by Lunlivgo as an ancient medieval town at the heart of Scottish history. If you're interested, if, you know, if your soul was prepared to be touched, it would be touched in Lunlivgo. Uh, so that was, that was important. Now, th- your question, yeah, I, I disagree with you. I think there is something a bit more to it than just being a Scottish nationalist because Scotland is an, an ancient nation, deserves to be equal in the modern community of nation. Obviously, that's important, vital. Uh, but Scottishness... It has come to reflect some other values. Best exemplified probably by Robert Burns, who actually recreated much of you know, Scottish literature and therefore Scotland's sense of itself. Uh, and you know, some of that, of course, like, like all uh, national identities, is built on a mythology. But mythology is not necessarily a bad thing if the mythology that uh, you're building on is a, is a positive image of uh, of self. In the modern world, what values are we talking about? I mean, is it too easy to say, as many often do, that Scotland somehow sort of innately is a social democratic country? It's not necessarily inaccurate. Scotland certainly has a stronger sense of community identity, social identity, a sen- how much higher social mobility, uh, and many of the things which have been most important to the, the Scottish psyche, you know, the intrinsic value of education, the, the idea that education is... Uh, Crucial not just in itself, but crucial in terms of uh, economic advance, but crucial for social mobility, ladder pairs, uh, you know, the idea that people could uh, you know, emerge from uh, modest circumstances and end up running this, that and the next thing, or inventing this, that and the next thing. Uh, you know, these, are, these are important, important values, uh, and doubt in modern terms in the 20th century they could be encapsulated as I don't know, Scandinavian social democracy. They probably predate it to a great extent but nonetheless valuable for all that. Within all that, of late, some people have been quite surprised to learn that you seem to be very attached and enthusiastic about the British monarchy. Can you see why people are somewhat sort of thrown by that? Well, of course, this is a tribute to my late mother, 
who, uh, <laughs> oh, this is, the, this is the, the lingering high Tory part of your soul, <laughs> well, isn't it? Well, high Tory is about, yeah, perhaps. But, well, I'll I tell you why. When, you, when you're proposing, my granda, you know, said something to me very important once. He said, listen, as I started out in politics, if you're going to say radical things, I like them, say them in a suit. And if you're proposing change, substantial change, necessary change in my view, then if you could find areas of continuity, particularly areas which emphasise the social union between Scotland and England, the people of these islands, then that's not a bad thing. Uh, and you know, if you and I were, were sitting writing the constitution of a, a new state that was coming into being with no history whatsoever, then probably the last thing you would think of was having a hereditary monarchy. Certainly would be about the last thing I would think of. But we're not in that position. We're interested in getting Scotland the, and the Scottish people the economic and political power to take charge of the circumstances. That's a way of sweetening the pill? No, I think it can be much more positive than that. I think you can say to people, look, this can be seen as a positive symbol of the social union between our nations, that politics change, economics change, self and collective determination change. But in terms of the, the interchange between people, uh, trade, goods, families, then that doesn't change because that is part of our history. And also, incidentally, to become independent, you don't have to you know, get rid of all the, the history which you might feel inconvenient. I mean, the, the history of the United Kingdom, the history of the empire, is part and parcel of the Scottish experience. You can't suddenly deny it just because you're going to become an independent country. How was the royal wedding? To be a, a well, Scottish nationalist leader and enthusiast for independence in among... Uh, you know, the English ruling elite. They, they got married. Uh, it turned out quite well. <laughs> I, I thought the bride was absolutely stunning. I'm told that uh, the UK Chancellor keeps popping up saying it, it damaged the economy, <laughs> which I find is the most... I mean, I've heard of, uh, of many, many excuses in my time for bad economic statistics, but I think, uh, you know, the royal wedding damaged the English economy. Uh, it's kind of strange. In future, have all royal weddings in Edinburgh... Uh, we'll, we'll take that economic damage. You had a good time. I had a fantastic time. I certainly don't regret going, and uh, I was very happy to, to, to represent Scotland. You became First Minister four years ago, over four years ago. How has holding the top job changed you, do you think? I ask you that because you've said in the past that being the leader of what, say, ten years ago was considered, certainly in Westminster anyway, a small party meant you had to shout louder and so on. Mm -hmm. I wonder how your political style, your method of operation has changed now you're in power. I think that's a fair point. I mean, you know, they, when I be, it wasn't so much 10 years ago, it was maybe 20 years ago. You know, when I became an MP, uh, the SNP had three MPs <laughs> in a parliament of 650. So you're basically faced with a straight choice. You can either dutifully uh, turn up and, and sit through endless debates, get called at you know, 10 minutes to midnight if you were lucky, and nobody would notice a word or thought you said, or alternatively, you could embark on a, a different idea, something to, to uh, try and draw attention to the, the Scottish predicament, the Scottish dilemma. And how does uh, you and the way that you think about politics and so on, how is that different now to the well, way I that it was 15, 20 years ago? I don't have to intervene in budgets now. I can deliver them instead or, or you know, I'll be there when Mr Swinney does. Are you as impatient as you famously once were, do you think? Well, I, I, I suppose... I suppose in 1987 uh, I was uh, anxious to proceed on this enterprise uh, as quickly as possible, but 
I suppose Mahara Arts, I would think we've made not too bad progress in the ensuing 24... I mean, it does seem to me, you know, we've made more progress, and I'm not saying that's due to me or even all due to the SNP, but it does strike me as we've made rather more progress in the last 25 years than we did in the preceding 275 in terms of... So I think the pace of change, as you judge these things on the whole, and I think you've got to judge these things on the whole, the pace of change does seem to be increasing. One former aide told your biographer that you were such a sort of hard taskmaster. He said that it wasn't actually possible to work for Alex and maintain a serious outside relationship. Is that still the case? Do you no, drive your people hard? I think, I think it was the serious relationship. That's because everybody's having so much fun that it's impossible to constantly have a poor face when you're... When you're Is there something you're to that about the way that you expect your people to work? I have a strong work ethic, and uh, that doesn't mean there's no, there's no time for... I mean, on the contrary, I, I mean, I... I'd like to think, I mean, it's always very difficult to, to judge yourself uh, as to how you... But if, if you mark it on the back of how long people have wanted to work for me and the number of people who keep coming back at various stages in their career to work for me again, then, then it, it can't be too unpleasant an experience as people keep returning. Pointed question. Is this a two-term first ministership? Because I wonder whether politicians go mad much beyond eight years of leadership. I mean, well, your, I great, your great friend and ally, Tony Blair, arguably suggests as much. Well, yeah, that just shows he was capable of self-analysis. Uh, I think it's ten, it's usually. Uh, I reckon it's more like ten than, uh, than eight. Will that apply to you? Well, I, I, I've got many good examples in, in my experience. I mean, there was, first there was Margaret Thatcher, then there was Tony Blair. Both of them seemed to... Actually, Blair actually went through that phase rather in advance of... Uh, I mean, obviously, Iraq was only, what, uh, six years into his leadership, and I can't think of any act of madness more... Actually, it wasn't mad, was it? It was, it was, more, it was worse than mad. I was talking about uh, Tony Blair. He was a, a, a method actor. He used to convince himself of any degree of uh, amorality or madness, and then rather capably convinced everyone else. So I, I think we're on the amoral streak of politics as opposed to just uh, the mad streak. Many politicians go mad. Most people man manage to go mad without killing hundreds of thousands of people. I, as you probably realise, dislike the former Prime Minister quite intensely. But I, I didn't dislike him viscerally before Iraq. Uh, I just thought Iraq took us beyond the pale of, of normal political conversation. I mean, this is someone who as far as the United Kingdom was concerned, was responsible for leading this country by deception into an extraordinary, illegal, disastrous adventure which cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. I know some people hesitate to put morality into politics. Well, Tony Blair never did, of course. But by any stretch, uh, then he's pretty much at one spectrum of unacceptability. Um, or polite society. I'm going to come back to that first question, which is about whether there is a limit, as far as you're concerned, on being First Minister time-wise for the reason that leadership is a, you know, successful leadership always proves to be finite. I mean, you mentioned 10 years before. Do you think after 10 years that's you done? Well, I, I think the timescale depends on the, the rate of constitutional progress. I mean, I expect to see Scotland independent within my term as, as First Minister. And uh, You're not being drawn here. If I'm back in Edinburgh in 2022 or 2023, you may well still be here. There's also difficulty in answering that question. Uh, and you can, you can actually show it by reference to first Margaret Thatcher and then Tony Blair. Margaret Thatcher famously said she was going to go on and on. Uh, Tony Blair, on the other hand, famously, after some urging from uh, Gordon Brown, said he was going to stand down after the, the next election. 
Uh, in the one case, you've got somebody who's so super arrogant they say they're going on forever. In the other case, you've got a lame duck prime minister. I neither intend to be super arrogant or a lame duck. Hence, my answer to the question is I'll be here as long as the, the country and the constitutional process and the progress to independence requires my presence. Looking back over the last four years, do you think it was somewhat unfortunate that on the international stage, the first occasion when powerful people abroad got a sense of what the new Scotland was, was when you took the decision to release Al Magrai. Actually, the, the first comment I made was within two weeks uh, of uh, becoming First Minister, when I exposed the, the deal with the desert, the arrangement of prisoner transfer uh, between the embrace of, uh, of Prime Minister Blair and, and Colonel Gaddafi. Of course, a lot of people in the London press uh, thought at the time I was just trying to pick a fight with, uh, with Westminster as opposed to listening to what I was saying about the implications of that prisoner transfer. I, I think as all the evidence is weighed, and I note incidentally we've had the first two opinion polls supporting the SNP's decision, as all the evidence is weighed, one thing's going to be absolutely clear that whether people agree or disagree with what the decision we made, everything shows we made that decision in good faith. Our bona fides, we are the only people in this whole affair who played things with sure, but let's, a, let's choose a nice English analogy, a, a straight bat. As the leader of a country which has not uh, had devolved arrangements very long, you're pushing for independence, clearly you would like Scotland to have a higher international profile. Did you feel it was unfortunate that your government on the face of it, on account of that decision, became, albeit temporarily perhaps, very, very unpopular in the USA? Well, I certainly were unpopular with uh, certain American senators, uh, but knowing the people concerned, I, I'm somewhat less concerned about that. For example, the decision was supported by Nelson Mandela. Uh, now, if I had to weigh in the balance whether I wanted to be popular with Nelson Mandela or Senator Menendez, uh, then I'd probably choose Nelson Mandela. There is legislative change proposed, is there not, whereby the details of Al Magrahi's appeal you hope will be published. Tell me why you want that to happen and what you hope it will do. Well, people understandably and for some time have been calling for a, a public inquiry. Uh, and the difficulty of public inquiry is obvious because unless you had an international remit, you couldn't get a hold of the, the evidence for an inquiry. You couldn't summon witnesses, you couldn't put people under oath internationally. It may be possible for, for the United Nations or perhaps a new democratic Iraqi administration. I'll sort of take that again. It may be possible for the United Nations or a new democratic Libyan administration to progress uh, uh, an inquiry. But certainly, we wouldn't be in a position to, to shed light through a Scottish inquiry beyond the parliamentary inquiry on release, which has already been held. However, the Scottish Criminal Case Review Commission spent, I think, three years interviewing every potential witness, examining every piece of evidence in a, an inquiry of theirs, which was international in scope, and compiled a statement of reasons, which was to go to the appeal court, which justified their decision to allow Mr McGrahy another appeal. There was a summary of that published, uh, which is freely available for anybody to read, but the full statement of reasons was never published because it had to go before a court. Now, there are legal obstacles for that publication. I'd like to see these obstacles removed because within that statement of reasons, I believe, there is the fullest possible presentation of evidence which I suspect would be more detailed than any inquiry could get hold of. Are you surprised he's still alive? Yes, uh, in the sense that uh, he was uh, thought to have a much lower life expectancy two years ago. On the other hand, I mean, nobody, I think, now seriously questions that this is someone who is dying 
uh, with terminal prostate cancer. I suspect one of the reasons, incidentally, uh, that the polls for the first time are showing a majority in favour of release is, is the pictures we saw recently from, uh, from Tripoli and you know, the sort of conspiracy theories led by American senators that somehow he wasn't really ill at all uh, have really been laid to rest. Big question. How will we judge the success or failure of an SNP government by the time we get to 2015? You know, what are the indicators? Well, I'm talking about the kind of country Scotland may be by then, you know. Not necessarily incremental policy detail, but how the shape of Scottish society or the Scottish economy will have have changed. Well, three things. I I hope people will, in relative to what the circumstances of the time, will see an improved economy, a better society, that's a good society. What does that mean? Well, a society which has tried to, in difficult economic times, keep a hold of some things which are, are more important than economic circumstances. Such as? Free education, for a start. We're back then to that flavour of Scotland being akin to one of the social democratic countries of Scandinavia. They're the kind of things that denote it. I, I, I like wonder, though, I mean, your Auditor General has made noises recently about whether that sort of vision is affordable, given where we are, given where Scotland is economically. Well, obviously, there's a huge challenge involved in this. Uh, we believe it's affordable, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. Can I just point out that a distinguishing feature of the, the Scottish government compared to the United Kingdom governments over the last four years is every year, by necessity, the Scottish government has balanced its budget. <laughs> Not in a single year has the United Kingdom Chancellor managed to come anywhere close to that. On the contrary, £150 billion. Well, official figures of late have said that in 2009 to 10. Scotland ran a budget deficit of about £9 billion. But, but the, that, that's including all public spending and revenue in Scotland, and that deficit, of course, it's our figures, yeah. is less than the comparable United Kingdom deficit. I mean, uh, you know, Scotland is one-tenth of the United Kingdom. But nonetheless, if, it might, if, if, you, if, no, if you're running a £9 billion deficit, according to government figures, you wonder whether that sort of social democratic paradise that you're right. talking about well, is affordable, can I come, is practicable. Right. The only country in Europe not running a deficit is Norway. Uh, Norway has the great virtue of having access to its own oil wealth, of course, but uh, you would expect under current circumstances country be running a deficit. I, I just point out to you that a £9 billion deficit you mentioned in Scotland proportionately is much less than the United Kingdom government's deficit. No, but it may but indicate was, the free prescription charges and free higher education are, are, are somewhat but, uh, trying as, as political possibilities. What I was pointing out is in terms of managing the Scottish government's own budget, then the, de- the borrowing of the deficit has been zero because we have a balanced budget and have had over the last four years. The qu- figure you quoted me was the balance of public spending eh, and revenue in Scotland, and I've just pointed out that relatively we're in a stronger position than the United Kingdom. Uh, therefore, if things can be afforded, then relatively they're more likely to be afforded in Scotland. But, you know, could it just be that we actually run things better <laughs> in Scotland? Isn't there a, a case and a, a proposition uh, that we actually can manage things rather better in, in Scotland than, 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 happens, uh, than happens elsewhere, certainly in, in recent times. What have you got that the English haven't in that sense, do you think? Well, I, I think in some ways it is easier to, to run uh, an economy in a country of 5 million plus people than it is to run one in, of 60 million. Uh, I think, for example, the, the Scottish Health Service, in my opinion, functions very well. Uh, and functions on a model which England has radically departed from. It doesn't have an internal market within it, but runs efficiently with, uh, with a lot to be said for it. I think perhaps you'd find that difficult to do on the scale of the NHS uh, south of the border, but nonetheless, I don't think that's a defence for doing of the fragmentation of the NHS, which is undergoing at the present moment. 
I think we respond to things better. I think we respond to emergency or difficult situations because, again, there is a, an advantage in scale and size and in continuity and getting people to work together. Now, maybe it's easier to manage a country on that scale, but, uh, or maybe it's just uh, that the SNP are better managers than uh, the Labour, Conservative or Liberal parties. I don't know, but one reason or another, I would argue that the competence of government is greater as well as the sense of government with the people. I like to believe and think that our public services are more in contact with the people they're meant to be serving than is the case in many cases south of the border. The other big watershed event on the horizon is, is a referendum on independence. Uh, we were out in Edinburgh today asking people how they felt about independence and you won't be surprised to hear that some people were in favour of it and some people were very much against it. Yeah, I'd vote in favour of independence, yes. Absolutely against. Why? I'm not fully convinced that we have the brain power, the capacity to run the country on an independent basis whatsoever. I don't think it's a good idea. We can't stand on our own two feet. We would fall apart. Me personally, I don't think now is the right time, you know, for independence. But still, I would still vote for them just because their other policies are better than the rest of the right. Scottish party. So you vote SNP despite the fact yeah, that despite, you don't, yeah, you don't yeah, think yeah, independence yeah. is the idea? It's because everything else that they do, they deliver. Right, OK. I would vote yes just to yeah. stick it to Cameron, to be honest. <laughs> but... To be honest, if it was independence at, no, at the moment, I think our country would be financially crippled within months. You know what I mean? Like, double-dip recession and all that shit. Yes. You'll vote yes? You yes. want an independent Scotland? Yes. Yes or no to Scottish independence then for you? No. I don't see Scotland fighting its own war all on its own some. And uh, what is independence if it isn't being fully independent? Yes or no on your part? It will be yes for me. I think we should give the country a chance. You trust him to lead you into independence? Yes. And those who were against it voiced the argument that an independent Scotland would be an economic disaster. And I guess one of the things that's implied by that is the idea that North Sea oil and gas would assume a huge importance in, in Scotland's economic health or otherwise. Commodity prices are extremely volatile now. That's a dwindling resource. What's your answer to that? Well, my answer is, if that is your estimate, then Scotland will become independent because, you see, the case for the union depends on a negative. It depends on the idea that Scotland would be an economic basket case. Now, nobody, no serious economist or no serious person would actually believe that to be the case, but the fact that there is a, a presentation abroad among the Scottish population helped, encouraged, uh, enabled by our, our unionist politicians that that is the case. If they rest their case on a lie, then they'll lose. How do you answer the point, though, about the fact that uh, oil and, and gas and the state of those markets would be so central to the performance of the Scottish economy as an independent nation that that would make navigating your way through that volatility as a country very, very difficult and perhaps threaten the, the viability of an independent Scotland. What's the answer to that? Glance across the North Sea, you'll see a country where oil and gas is an even greater share of the economy than it is in Scotland. Uh, and as opposed to having any difficulty in navigation, it's the only country in Western Europe running a budget surplus. It's got a... a <laughs> a fund uh, for the uh, future generations on reaching some £300 billion sterling now. If you go and ask somebody in Norway, when's your oil and gas going to run out? The answer is never, uh, because the investment fund which they've built up over just over the last 15 years, actually, will never run out uh, and provides uh, stability and certainty to the Norwegian economy, not just, uh, incidentally, guiding a path through uncertain times, but the only country in Western Europe able to chart a path through these uncertain times. Two last questions. Um, the highest that, I think I'm right in saying, that the poll rating in favour of independence has got, certainly of late, is about 44%, which is pretty good, no doubt. 
But it does sort of prompt the question, what do you do if you lose? I mean, your party's raison d'etre is independence. You're very upfront about that now. How does Alex Salmond politically survive in a world in which the Scottish electorate have rejected independence? Well, you know, I spent a, a lifetime in politics answering hypothetical questions. Uh, I usually predicate It's not an unreasonable hypothetical I, question. I didn't say it was unreasonable, but the, the reason that I've survived so long and done reasonably well to date is that I've always hypothesised on success rather than failure. I've always found it very bad politics, very bad life, actually, to start wondering what you're going to do when you lose. Uh, I think it's far better to explain what you'll do when you win. Uh, and incidentally, I won't lose. <laughs> I may hold it to that. Um, here's a question about exactly that scenario that I've always wanted to ask you. If you look at the post-war history of Britain, a lot of the things which materially improved the lives of millions of people, I'm talking about the health service chiefly, for, uh, the expansion of state education and so on, a lot of the, the great moves forward which happened under the Labour government of 45 to 51, they were achieved because of a coalition, really, of uh, working-class English Welsh and Scottish voters. Uh, and I wonder, if Scotland were to go independent, clearly you would be leaving a large number of English voters at the mercy of a very populous Tory-dominated English South. Tory government forever. Now, as someone who uh, identifies with the political left and its ideas in Britain, that's a fairly nightmarish possibility to me. And I worry that you'd be leaving me in the lurch we, I mean, we, well, share, I, I, we I, I, share a lot of social democratic values and so on, but you'd be saying, well, bye-bye. I'm leaving you at the mercy of what is increasingly clear, kind of crypto-Thatcherite Tory governments, you know, stretching into, into eternity, uh, while you got on with creating a new Scotland. What do you say to people like me? I don't want you to leave for that reason. OK. And what, what I'd say is it's one of Scotland's great vanities. It's been the idea that we could somehow save the English population from the government they wanted to vote for. I'm not certain that was the, the uh, justifiable attitude, but uh, whether it was justifiable or not, it certainly wasn't able to happen. I mean, even when you had Labour governments, the National Health Service, I, I was in the House of Commons, I broke my rule not to not vote in English affairs, to vote against foundation hospitals, I think it was 2002. I broke my rule not to vote again on English affairs, to vote against tuition fees imposed by a Labour government. You know, I voted, against, I voted against something which wasn't breaking any rule. I voted against a war in Iraq uh, from a Labour government. So, you know, the, the great uh, enterprise of, of collective will uh, seemed to be, you know, some Scots uh, nationalists, one or two uh, Scots Labour MPs, not that many, incidentally, and quite a number of English Labour MPs trying desperately to prevent a Labour government, a Labour government, yeah. as Neil Cunnick would have said, voting for all these things that uh, people in the, the English left found so But wouldn't it be a tragedy I've even, I've even heard that people wrote books about why they shouldn't vote for uh, a Labour government under these circumstances. So all I'm saying to you is there might be a different way forward. I was always very impressed by the, the Billy Bragg idea, uh, which is basically, I mean, I, I paraphrase him, and I'd probably do him a great injustice, but and it's a few years since I, I read his book to this effect, but the idea that, uh, that England would find itself when it had to uh, account uh, for itself in terms of how it developed its ideas, how has it rediscovered and refound its own radical tradition? I don't think, even if we could numerically, which we can't, we can do that for. It's about you know, it's the conceit, it's a wee bit like the... So I'm not saying it's an imperial conceit, but it's a bit, it's, it's a bit like the idea that, you know, 
if uh, we weren't running India, then uh, you know the world would be a dreadful place because you know we only ran India so as we could provide it with trains and efficient policing. And you mustn't. No, Scotland mustn't have that conceit because a numerically can't do it, and b of course that. You know, and I've always hesitated to do this because the last thing I'd want to do is to you know, start preaching for the English about how to how to organise their own society. But I do actually believe if uh, if the English left and people in England rediscovered its radical tradition, then certainly England and perhaps even the world would be a much better place because there is a rich vein of radicalism to be tapped. And you're not going to do that if you say, well, what we'll do is hope that uh, the Scottish Labour Party might provide us with the occasional flawed leader. So you're going to leave us to it, and the price we may have to pay is a long, long spell of Tory government? Well, I think uh, England's a great nation, and I think the English people will be more than capable, in due course and due time, of sorting out the Tory imposters who seize control of your parliament. Alex Hammond, thank you very much. Great pleasure, thank you.